Last week, we talked about people in the Bible. And in the book, of course, if you read the book, there's quite a few more in there than what we were able to talk about here. We're going to talk just a little bit about places today. And then we're going to start on things. And then next week, we'll be doing a few more things from the Bible. So does anybody have any questions left from last time? I'm 78 years old, so if you ask questions, I can still hear, but you have to ask them loud and distinct. <clears throat> okay? All right, we guess we're ready to roll then. So first thing, places. So you have a nice, neat Bible atlas at home, and you've got all kinds of names on there, nice little dots, and you say, oh, I know where all those places are. As the musical says, it ain't necessarily so. <clears throat> In other words, of the Bible places... 475, we know where about 270 of them were. And the others are, are uh, uncertain. But there's ways to try to figure it out. There's one slide missing. Hmm. All right, I'll have to give it to you. There was a couple missed last week. There should be a sign that says lost places. That's all right. All right, I'll give it to you. Okay, there's 475 places. We know where about 270 of them are, and they're usually finding more. So how do they put these nice places on a nice map for you? Well, what they do is some places were always continuously occupied. There's always been a Jerusalem. There's always been a Bethlehem. There's always been a Nazareth. So people kind of know where they are. So, how do they find out the others? Well, one is to read ancient itineraries. Conquering armies were traveling through all the time. After Jesus' time, pilgrims were always traveling through. And so, you don't know where place Y is. But you know where X is and where Z is. And so, if a certain guy's traveling along and he says, I went through X... And then I traveled five miles, and I went through Y. And then I traveled five more miles, and I went through Z. You just have to go between the two and look for a likely spot. On very rare occasions, there'll be a name there, actually a city limit sign, a post that says this is the edge of the territory of Gezer. Or sometimes if there were things being manufactured or stored there, there'll be labels on the jars. And then you still have to figure out, well, is, this the, is the label on the jar where it was coming from or where it was going? <clears throat> and so that's one way. The final way is, in the 1800s, American and British explorers went and explored the land thoroughly. It was still under Turkish rule. And they had a general idea from the Bible where places were. And they knew it was a medium-sized village, and it was on a hill. So they'd go in that area and they'd look, or they'd know it was along a stream. And they'd ask the Arab-speaking Arabic speaking people, what's the name of that place over there? And they'd tell them, well, whatever. So they'd write it down and go. After a while, they figured out, well, there's an awful lot of places that have that name. So they went and asked them, what does that mean? They said, it means we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, so they still had to do a little bit more digging. That couldn't, didn't quite solve it. There are pretty standard rules, though. And you have examples in the book. 
Bet-lechem is Hebrew. bet is Arabic. Gibeah is jib in Arabic. And so when Greek and Latin came and went, they always went back to the Semitic names. And so the Arabic names, in most cases, they could have moved the village a little bit or something, but they're, they're pretty good. So they have that as a source, and that's sort of how they map things and then try to map it out and make, see, make things work out. And so the, more and more places are known, but even their excavations often don't identify the place. The places have names like apple, tapuach, and so you'd say, could they grow apples here? But there's more than one tapuach. Or there's like, it becomes real confusing in the Bible sometimes, Gibeah means hill city. Well, there's, just like there's a lot of bay cities and Washingtons and stuff in the United States, there's a lot of hill cities. So it can help you if you get down to theirs. There's a fancy word for that, it's called toponymy, which is the science of place names. All you have to know is this is how they figured out the place names. And so it became a matter of linguistics. So any questions just about that, how it works? I tried not to use the fancy words. You know, when do you reach your f- mental peak your, and your physical peak? What age? 40. Depends on. Might, 40 might be 25. So from 25 on, you can still learn languages because, you know, you've got connections in your mind. But if they give you a, a list of 10 words that make no sense, or like Finnish, no cognates, from 25 on, you can't process them and remember them as well. By 40, you've lost quite a bit of that. And so place names are a little bit hard to work with. Well, I, when I was in my 60s, I was teaching students who were 25. So they were all a whole lot sharper than me mentally. <laughs> but you can keep your peak vocabulary until you're 75. So I'm only three years past, three years out of date for my peak vocabulary. So if you're 60 and you're teaching 25-year-olds, use a lot of big words. <laughs> and you'll be able to stay ahead of them and you'll be able to keep them going. So we're only going to talk about a couple of the places that are lost. One is, if you look in... 20 Bible atlases, I think you'll find Ur of the Chaldees that Abraham came from way down in southern Iraq. Probably not correct. When did Ur of Chaldees, where Abraham lived, when did it get in southern Iraq? Well, early in the 20th century, archaeologists were excavating down there and they find a place called Ur. In those days, they really wanted to be connected to the Bible. And so they said, oh, this must be Ur of the Chaldees that Abraham came from. Well, there's a few problems with that. All the accounts in the Bible always bring the patriarchs from way up in northern Iraq, between the two rivers. The rivers are not the Tigris and Euphrates. They're the Habur and the Balik. There were places up there called Urfa, which were traditionally associated. Abraham was not Sumerian, which is a totally different cuneiform language, and an, a language we barely know. It says that he was east of the um, Euphrates. When they go to find wives, they're all up there, aren't they? Abraham seems to speak that he was from the same place as his ancestors. If you're going from Ur, 
You see, when you get to Mari, if you're going to the promised land, right in the middle there is Mari. You'd cut across. It's not quite as good a road. But if you go to Haran, it's way out of your way when you're going to Canaan. So there isn't proof, but it's highly unlikely that Abraham came from the southern Ur. He probably came. And this is what often happens. Uh, people want to make a connection with the Bible, and they say, well, the Bible says, well, the Bible didn't say that. And then they say, well, see, the Bible was maybe wrong because that wasn't a very good choice. And the Chaldeans were also Arameans. They were also from the north. So here's a case where probably just the geographical improbabilities make it highly unlikely that it's that Ur. Finally, it doesn't matter that much. But all of the patriarchal sites are up there. They're between the Tigris and Euphrates, but they're in some little river valleys there. That's called Aram Naharayim, the Syria of the two rivers. And there were two rivers there, and that's not real great agriculture, but pretty good for sheep and all of that stuff. So that's one example. Uh, this next example probably shows, read the Bible carefully. Here's one, too, where almost every book you look in, it's going to say Sodom and Gomorrah were in the south bay of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is a really unusual thing. 1,300 feet deep, at least used to be, on the north, 15 feet deep on the south. Now the south is all dried up because they're using too much water for irrigation. So they were always looking for the cities under that south bay. And they found some interesting cemeteries and stuff. But the, why is that unlikely? When Lot leaves Abraham, they were north of the Dead Sea. Abraham was up in the highlands. And they said Lot went to the Kikar, the region of the Jordan. The region of the Jordan is north of the sea. That's where we should be looking for Sodom and Gomorrah, unless that was Sodom and Gomorrah's rangeland and Lot was working there and the cities were by the sea. Now that the sea's dried up, there's no evidence of cities under the sea. So why did they, all the Bible dictionaries and stuff say it was in the south battle of the sea? What the Bible does say, it says the battle against the invading kings was at the south bay of the Dead Sea. It does not say the cities were there. And if you read the account carefully, what did the kings do? The kings came down from up north, they went past the sea, down into the wilderness, and then came back up to attack Sodom and Gomorrah. So the kings are coming from the south. So even if the Sodom and Gomorrah armies are north of the sea, they're going to want to stop them as soon as they can, aren't they? They're not going to want to stop them when they're, you know, camping outside their gate. So the Bible says the battle was at the south part of the Dead Sea. It does not say that the cities were there. And so a lot of things you find, it, it, it comes about that they maybe didn't read the Bible text as carefully as they should have. This is kind of what happened. So any questions about Sodom and Gomorrah? And there were other cities. This one, if you've been on the internet much and you like to browse around the internet, you've probably seen all kinds of stuff about this in the last 10 years. Traditionally, people always thought South Sinai Mount Sinai was in the Sinai Peninsula. Well, that's not doesn't mean too much because the Sinai Peninsula was named because people thought that Mount Sinai was there. But everything you look at points at the Sinai Peninsula. And for about the last 
maybe it's almost 15 years now, one of the perpetrators, a man named Ron Wyatt, he's been dead a few years, they say, no, Mount Sinai has to be in Saudi Arabia, and the sea that they crossed was not the Gulf of Suez, but the Gulf of Aqaba. So they would say, the idea that they crossed somewhere up there north, at the north tip of the Red Sea, the Red Sea actually covers everything all the way to Burma. In other words, everything that, there's the inside ocean, the Mediterranean, everything else is the outer sea, the Red Sea. That's not a Hebrew name, that's a classical name. So the traditional idea of the Exodus is the red line. I don't know if you can see it clearly enough. Down to Mount Sinai, up to the land. They're supposed to go in by Kadesh Barnea from the south. They finally went to decide to go around Moab. The new theory, so to speak, is that Israel went all the way across the Sinai wilderness, which would take a few days. They got down to the middle of the Gulf of Aqaba, and they crossed over to Saudi Arabia. Then they went back up to Kadesh Barnea, which they had never been there, apparently, and then around. And you'll find this published a lot of places. One of the reasons that you'll find that is that they found the chariot wheels of Pharaoh's chariots under the Red Sea, where the Red Sea is 1,300 feet deep. Uh, what's the first thing you ask when somebody finds something like that? Huh? Yeah, show us the GPS. They could say, well, they used to say, well, we had pictures of the ark, but the communists burned them, you know. Show us the GPS. That'd be one thing. And show us good archaeologically made pictures. So they placed it way over there. The other thing is they say, well, Paul says Mount Sinai was in Arabia. That's maybe their strongest argument. Well, there was no state of Saudi Arabia. The Sinai Peninsula was part of Arabia, Arabia Petria. So Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula is in Arabia. Arabia Felix, where all the incense and everything came from, that was way down south, where the Queen of Sheba came and so on. So there's no real evidence for that. And why should we be a little hesitant to take something especially when there's no tradition to support it? Elijah went to the south of Judah and then went to Mount Sinai. That would suggest it's in the Sinai Peninsula. All the early pilgrims, so they knew where it was during Elijah's time. The writer didn't have to explain where Mount Sinai is. He just said everybody knew where it was. He said he went there. So this was Mount Sinai. When they started building churches and they went and asked people, they, they showed them this group of mountains. This is, this is Mount Sinai. This is a really huge, huge wall. This was built in the 500s by Justinian. So all the early accounts, so there is no real evidence for it to be at Saudi Arabia someplace. It doesn't make any sense as far as the journeys and so on. So we can't say we know exactly where they crossed. You can read it in laborious detail in the book, but everything, if you're going to change a traditional site, like we've changed a couple of traditional sites, like Ur, you have to have pretty good evidence for that, plus you should have pretty good evidence that the old view had some flaws in it. So Mount Sinai was probably not there. Why should you also be 
It's going to get much, much worse with artificial intelligence coming now. You're going to see all kinds of fake biblical pictures. You'll find no shortage of pictures of they found Goliath's bones and stuff like that. Well, first of all, you have to ask, what's the GPS? If you found, if you found chariots, wheels of Pharaoh under the Red Sea, what would you do? Would you leave them there? No. You, you'd want them, wouldn't you? They'd be worth big bucks. You'd want chariot wheels. So they have pictures of the chariot wheels, and they're made of iron, which chariot wheels were finished with iron, but they weren't made of iron. They're, they're horrible archaeological pictures. You'll see some examples. We might not quite get to them today. When you're taking a picture of anything archaeological, like an altar or anything, you always have a person or your hand or a, a meter stick so that you have the scale. And you have a number of the date you took the picture, uh, the coordinates and everything of the picture. None of these pictures have any of that. So when you see these pictures on the Internet, ask them, where's the GPS? Where's the scale? Well, what they looked at, if you look at these chariot wheels a little bit closer that were found under the Red Sea, they're round iron wheels. There's no scale. So they're probably like this, not like this. So what, what are these? There's no scale. They look just like the wheels that are on oil tankers you know, when they turn the valves. It's easier to turn the valve if you got like a wheel. They look just like the wheels that fall off, are on oil tankers and presumably fall off oil tankers. So I think the main point here, rather than just this specific site, is when you see things like that on the internet, when they had that, we had that big tsunami, what was that, 10 years ago? You know, a huge tsunami. And you have all kinds of pictures of people running away from the tsunami. None of them are real. And you even have people standing there watching the tsunami coming. Now, if there's a 30-foot tsunami coming, you know, there's some people running away from it, and some people are kind of standing there. So fake pictures are going to be a much, much bigger thing now because they can make the fakes much better than they used to. So that's Mount Sinai. So there have been a lot of fright things. I would say that 80% of the archaeologists put no credibility at all on the new Mount Sinai in Arabia. Part of it is the reason, one of the main guys that started it was named Ron Watt. He not only found Cheryl's ferry wheels, he found the Ark of the Covenant, he found Christ's blood, he found uh, some, some treasures from Solomon's temple, but he doesn't have them in his museum. You know, I'm afraid somebody sabotaged them. So you're going to have to be much more skeptical than you used to be about any Bible pictures, archaeology pictures, and stuff that you see on the internet. They have to have very good credentials, very good methodology, or you shouldn't believe it. So that's about all I'm going to say about places. There's a lot of other interesting places, AI, Emmaus, Bethsaida, which the traditional interpretations probably aren't correct. The Mount of the Beatitudes. Nice church. We only have a service there if we do a tour, usually on a boat offshore. Highly unlikely. I think most of the identifications are pretty good, but highly unlikely that it's correct. When we walked between there and Capernaum, it was maybe a half-hour walk. Where does the Mount of the 
of the, I mean the feeding of 5,000. It's located in the same area by tradition. It's not right on the hill. It can't be a, a half-hour stroll into town, can it? The crowd says, what are we going to do? How are we going to feed all these guys? We're very far away in that. It has to be someplace on the far side of the sea. So a lot of things, it says, read the Bible carefully. Okay, now we'll talk about things. Any questions about places? I mean, you can give me a 10 o'clock. When is it 10 o'clock? Okay, things in the Bible. We'll see how many we have time over the next two weeks. There's two things here. You don't have to give your answer now, but tell, what the, tell in your mind what these two things are. Things in the Bible, that one up on top, and then one down in the bottom in green. You'll see both of what those two things are very shortly. Cheese curds and other foods. That is a butter churn. Or maybe we should say a butter rocker, because it's not really a, a turn. Somebody said you shouldn't use cheese, cheese curds in your Bible translation because that makes it sound too Wisconsin. <laughs> what did they actually reveal? That they were too Wisconsin. That they think cheese curds are something to do with Wisconsin. Or you know, we have a, what, what Culver's makes, if they're fried, they're not cheese curds. <clears throat> they're fried cheese. I, did, I haven't told Mr. Culver yet. I don't want to break his heart. <laughs> but he's not actually selling cheese curds when he fries them. He's decurding them by frying them. So there's all kinds of things. The other big place besides Wisconsin that's big on cheese curds? Quebec or Quebec, whichever you'll ask. But in what do they do there? They have white cheese curds. You pull them on French fries, and what do you do? Pour gravy over it. Pour gravy over it. So if you want real cheese curds, they have to be white, squeaky, on top of French fries, and also gravy. So in food, the same principle I've been stressing you can't equate their words with ours. And I'll just take one example of cheese. And different foods are considered high class or low class depending on the thing. So we think of milk, butter, cheese, curdled milk. So we see a bunch of dairy products and we kind of put them in bins and we say, yeah, I'm not quite sure on that one. So you have to try to figure out what they were. If they're eating the milk, what is it? We'd probably call it cheese if they're eating it. So cheese is what it is. A lot of things. If you're drinking the cheese, what is it? It's very liquid. When we lived in Israel and we shopped in the street markets, there were like five things that we called yogurt. And they all had different Arabic and Hebrew names. And the yogurt was... Uh, the Hebrew word for yogurt is yogurt. One of Paul's favorites was Bugs Bunny yogurt that you bought at the supermarket because you could drink Bugs Bunny yogurt. It was like a shake or something, so you could drink Bugs Bunny yogurt. Anything that we call, if we gave them our milk, they'd say, you people are ridiculous, that's not milk, that's water. In other words, what's the good part of the milk is the fat. And again, there are cultural differences as far as food. Quite regularly in EHV, we'll say this was rich food. But we'll have a little footnote below it, fat food. Because the best food was the fat. They were calorie deprived. We have too many calories, they had too little. 
So you really needed the calories very, very much. So the more calories, the better. I think when Irene was growing up, they used to serve people that were doing hard physical work in the harvests and stuff like that. They'd come in, they'd pour pure, pure cream almost over their, their food and stuff because they needed the calories. It's a, in their view, it would be a, it's a sin when you take the fat out of food. If you're fat in that culture, what does it mean? It means you're rich. You've got enough money that you can eat. If you look at a lot of the native tribes, the, chief, the chiefs are not usually Slim Jims, are they? <clears throat> During the Middle Ages, just to jump ahead to beer a little bit, they had a fast. But from graves, they tell that the monks, who were supposed to live such a hard life, not the ones out in the desert, they were actually bigger than normal people, which means they had a lot better diet. When they fasted, they couldn't eat any food, but they could drink liquid. The limit was they could not drink more than seven liters of beer per day without breaking their fast. <laughs> so if you only drank seven liters of beer, you're still good. You got your fasting streak running. So foods have different connotations. Try to kind of watch what those connotations are. When we hear cheese, where does cheese come from? Cows. If it doesn't come from cows, we have to say goat cheese or something. In the Bible, it's just the opposite. There's one place where it says David took his brother some cow cheese because that was an exception. Goat cheese, sheep cheese wouldn't be. Meat was very rare. You had to be somewhat rich. Why? You couldn't kill your wool source and your cheese source, or you couldn't kill your chickens too lightly because you needed them for the eggs. And so those animals did not exist primarily for their meat. They loved the meat, but they couldn't always do the meat because it was too expensive and too costly. The Passover, you'd kill one lamb and you'd share it with everybody because you had to, had to use it. I always wondered, when they give sacrifices to God, the burnt offerings, most of them were not burnt. There were five kinds. Only one of them was completely burned. Rest, they just burned portions. The priests got some for support. And if you were doing kind of like what we would do at a baptism meal, they'd make a sacrifice. You'd invite everybody and you'd eat it. What did they burn? They burned the fat to God. And when I was old, I thought, well, that was kind of chintzy. You know, I had bought the propaganda. The fat is bad. I didn't know yet that it's the most valuable food substance. So I kind of bought the propaganda. So the fat was the best that you were burning to God because the fat was very valuable. You needed it for calories. So there's all kinds of different cheeses there. You, got, you can read a little bit about them. Uh, to us, it doesn't matter so much. It's just a matter of knowing that, like everything else, anytime you see a food name in the Bible, it, it's kind of, it's an approximation of what ours is. So is that thing quite large? Is what? No, it's, this actually, since this is the PG, yeah, yeah, since it, you're going to see it in a minute, this is the PG version, a very old one, 4,000 years old, is on the head of the goddess, because she's providing fertility and stuff like that, so it depended on, were you making it to sell, are you making a, whipping up a batch for your family, here you see what, this is actually the fake, this is the more expensive one, what they do is they take a sheep or a goat, that's a sheepskin, 
You sew it all up, just like they use the skins for wine skins. You sew it all up. You put the stuff in it, and you can see the ladies. You see the scale. You see the little girl there. Fifty years ago, you still saw a lot of this. All of these things, making the pottery, making the mud brick. They're all tending to disappear now. You have plastic cans and stuff like that. But you could see it 50 years ago. Now they just do it in museum type things. You see even here she has a can in front there instead of a pot. So these things are disappearing. So the names are very fine. We don't always know the names. Hebrew didn't have vowels and words for, can be tricky. If the milk was something you ate, did you pronounce it a little bit different than uh, if it was something you drank? I'm sure that all of their milk, they didn't really believe in skim milk. They had to use the skim milk if they used this stuff for others. But it was very, very different. Meat was rare, so grain and dairy were the basis of the poor people's diet. And words can be very fine. Uh, when we lived there, Irene, of course, Paul and I were off at school, so she had to go and do a language study for an immigrant. So she, we don't know if she can be on Israel's uh, health system or not since she took the language course, and she and Paul were out shopping, and Irene had forgotten the milk. See if she remembers this. She might have a different version, but I'm going to tell my version. <laughs> so the checkout ladies usually didn't know English, and so Irene told the lady that she had sent Paul, ran, sent Paul to run and get the kelp, and the clerk was completely puzzled. And there was an Israeli behind Irene, and she said, she means the kalab. If she said, I sent Paul to get the kalab, that would mean I sent Paul to get the milk, to look for milk. If she said, I sent Paul to get the kalab, kalab, that means I sent Paul to look for the dog. <laughs> and so the checkout lady was a bit puzzled if our dog had escaped and was running amok in the supermarket or everything. <laughs> the other point is, that's actually relevant, you have to be ready to make mistakes if you're going to play around with any language because they're inevitable and you must make them. It's inevitable. So this is a, you want to call it a churn, you can call it a rocker. So all these different expressions for cheese, and we'll talk about some different examples. You can read more detail about it. Did they eat the cheese? This is common in a lot of languages. In Sweden, they'll ask you, did you eat your medicine today? Did you remember to eat your medicine? They eat medicine, we take medicine. And so often if somebody in a foreign language is talking to you, you can tell a lot about it, about their language, by the way they talk English to you. I'll give you just one semi-graphic example. <clears throat> My grandfather, who always had German as his first language, never really went to English church, he would tell me, I have to make water. What does that mean? Number one. <clears throat> Go to the bathroom. You need to make water. So other languages do that. So getting from language to language, the point that's relevant to translation, it's tricky. It's tricky. And you can hope to have good approximations. You can't hope to have infallibility. So there's all these different kinds of cheese. Gvina is the modern Hebrew word. We can't put too much on that because they just borrow the words from the Bible. We didn't use the word curdled milk if we could kind of avoid it. Because most Americans don't find curdled milk, you know, it was in the refrigerator too long or something. It doesn't sound real appealing, so we'd call it uh, soft cheese or liquid cheese or something like that. So it's tricky. 
And also Kurds. You do have to say cheese curds because there are other kind of curds. In Britain, curds are like a, a pudding. And there's fruit curds, there's tofu curds. So people should be careful. Baking. Just talk briefly about bread. I mentioned that 50 years ago, you still saw a lot of that. You see the TV aerial there? It's kind of like the, the ovens they use in India, the Indian food. So you could have a big one for the family. You had to do the grinding, a little thing, or it could be a big grinding machine. Have, I have different PowerPoints with some of those. What kind of teeth did they have? They didn't drink Coke. So they had pretty good teeth for the most part. They did do fillings and stuff, the Egyptians or the rich people. Their teeth wore out. As you get older, your teeth get shorter. Why? Because there's a lot of sand in your bread. If you're grinding the grain and making the flour with stone, you're also eating some stone with your bread. And after, if you make it that far, your teeth are going to start wearing out. So there's all kinds of different words. Cakes. We think of like a birthday cake. Most of the time when it says cakes in the Bible, we translate it like buns or rolls. Were they dipping it? Were they putting things on it? You'd find these big rolls that were like a big circle. They had sesame seeds on them, and they were fried. So they had pita, of course, is one that still survived. Were they frying the bread? Most of their food they boiled, but they had frying pans. So all of these words for food have an interesting history. We use the word grits. People think, well, that's the Alabama translation. It's the Alabama Bible. They're eating grits all the time. Grits are just a way of cutting grain. And often they're eaten more like a cereal, like certain kinds of oatmeal are really grits. I think cut up oats, what do they call those oats? Steel cut. Yeah, they're kind of a form of grits or an ingredient for grits. So foods are all different. And it's interesting to know what they're diet is. They, of course, did not have corn, maize corn. That came from America. In, in the King James, what does corn mean? It means grain. It used to mean any kind of grain. So grain was corn. So you have all kinds of things, flatbread, pancakes. You take your best guess, but recognize they are approximations. Beer. Another giveaway that this is a Wisconsin translation, because we use the word beer in the translation. In the Bible, there's two kinds of alcoholic drinks. One, we translate wine, yayan, but it means vine, so it's just made from grapes. Some cultures, Israel seems to be primarily a wine culture. Egypt is primarily a beer culture, although they had both of them. Everything else was made from grain, and all of that should be called beer. Not so much quite like our beer. Did you know that the Lord got four, four cases of beer every week? It was, they, they, they made these offerings of drinks they poured out. Sekar, beer, is one of them. There's big, a lot of language. So the Lord got both beer and wine offered. He didn't use any food, of course, but they were called food offerings, drink offerings. So they, the Lord received beer. What was grain? There was no hops. Wine, grapes ferment very easily. If you leave your grapes on for a long time, the birds can get drunk because there's already wine. Grain is much harder, so you have to put something in. Now they use yeast or something. There they'd often throw in dates. The Greeks would throw in honey, resulting in mead. So the grain drinks were actually more like 
a little bit more like what we call malt liquor. When they used to, t wine coolers were kind of a big thing. If you look at the labels, 90% of the wine coolers weren't wine coolers. <clears throat> they were actually grain-based, so it was false advertising, just like almond milk isn't milk and so on. It's not champagne unless it grows in France. So there's all these disputes about the words. The result was the way they brewed it, there was a lot of debris. <clears throat> I think the field, is it 10? Okay, the Field Museum in Chicago has a lot of Egyptian exhibits, and I think they have one like this. How did they make their beer? They baked bread. Why was beer one of the greatest inventions in history? Not because of the alcohol, but because you got more, if you took the grain and made it into beer, you got more calories than if you ate the grain. So it helped their diet. And so the beer, they'd make the bread and they'd put the, they'd put the bread in the water. And I think in Chicago, I think they have one, but I have them in the other PowerPoint too. The whole process, they made the bread, they baked it, they capped it up and so on. Well, the result of the way they did it in the big jars, there was a lot of, the nautical term is flotsam and jetsam in the beer. They call this a Philistine beer jug. It's a nice jug, but I'm not sure it's beer. It's really a strainer jug. They think it's a beer jug because of the strainer. You didn't want all the, can I use the technical scientific name? The technical scientific name for that is crud. So at the bottom of the beer, there was a lot of crud. And you didn't want the crud in your mouth. So you had to strain it out. And so you can kind of tell the different cultures. The other thing, when you're dead and gone, we'll know if you drank wine or beer. If you examine the skeletons, the chemical makeup of the skeleton for people who basically had a beer grain diet is different than the chemical makeup of the skeleton of someone who drank wine. Next week, I think it'll be next week before we get there, we'll talk about skeletons, all the stuff you can learn from skeletons. So you drink with straws. This is still done in Africa and other places. So they didn't have bring your own beer parties, they had bring your own straw party. So a lot of times they just got a reed or something, but the well-to-do, you know, they'd have a nice gold designer straw, and they sit around a pot like this. This is in Africa about 50, 60 years ago. So you drink with straws, you had a little mouthpiece. So when you're having beer, you're either straining it or spitting a lot or using a straw. So different things are different. So beer was part of the culture. Here's a few other examples of drinking through their straws. So if you want to drink beer like an Egyptian, you have to bring a straw to the party. Beer unites archeologists with their ancient friends. There's a man in New Orleans at Xavier University who is the archeologist of beer. And he and I regularly exchange material. So I've got like an hour and a half PowerPoint on brewing a lot of it to Michael Holman. He's a Jesuit, so if there's anything in bad taste in the PowerPoint, I always say blame the Jesuits. That's, that's not my fault, that's, that's the Jesuits' fault. So you also know, if you paid attention last week, who is the guy on my right that's an anthropoid human-shaped coffin? If you looked at all the pictures in the book or last week, you know he's a Philistine. Look at his hat. He's wearing a Philistine hat. So the guy's a Philistine. 
wine press. How do you hide inside a wine press? Remember, Gideon hid inside a wine press. Actually, it's quite simple. A wine press has two main parts, the floor where you stamp on it. Grape presses are quite different, of course. And then it has a pit. A lot of times it has two pits. And so the wine runs into one pit, and there's a hole, and then it runs into the next pit. In the first pit, a lot of the, now you know the correct scientific term, the extra stuff in the wine falls to the bottom of the first pit. Then the wine goes to the next pit, and then they put it in jars out of the second pit. So Gideon, when he hides inside the wine press so they wouldn't see him, he jumps down into the pit. And he's trying to clean up his grain down in the pit so they won't see them. So this is a wine press. An artist's conception of the Harvest Festival, which was a really big thing. Sometimes they have subway strap handles above there so the guys don't fall in the wine. Sometimes it's like this. Honey, if you eat honey. Who, who makes honey? Bees. No, it ain't necessarily so. The Hebrew word for honey is devash. Devash means sweet stuff. Devash is like fruit roll-ups would be devash. You know, those fruit roll-ups, you take the fruit and you dry it out. That would be devash. So sometimes in the Bible it would say honey of the comb. Well, why do you have to say honey of the comb? Because there are other, other honeys that are not of the comb. And by and large, probably the thing they made them from most often, there were professional places. We don't know any place in the Bible that they had an apiary. But that a lot of the honey was made from dates. Also a kind of a... If it was made from dates, they wouldn't call it date wine. They'd call it beer, because there was grain with it. So even a word like honey is not necessarily made by bees. So if it seems that it isn't, maybe you should put both it honey or sweetener. How much? Okay, we've got 10 minutes. Okay, we'll talk about a few coffins and stuff we'll do next week. So all of these things make connections. And if you've got too much time on your life and you need something to do to occupy your time, there's all these fields. You can become the archaeologist of beer, Michael Holman is the renowned archaeologist of beer who has some very nice PowerPoints. I'll, I'll get you a, your, your excitement up for next week. It's one of the things we're going to talk about next week is toilets. <laughs> the scientific study of the content of toilets is coprology. <clears throat> There's quite a few openings in the coprology field. So if you need you got to leave some of the competition behind, that would be one PhD you could aspire to, <laughs> the PhD of coprology. I'll touch on it briefly. We're going to talk mostly about the form of the toilets. Why do I put this picture in here? Because it's my favorite manger. The manger is in the bottom corner there. Nobody except the richest person would ever make a manger out of wood. Wood was far too precious. So what you're seeing is German mangers on the Christmas card not Israeli mangers. If you were pretty rich like a king and you had big stables, you'd carve them out of stone. And I'll show you one in a minute. But normally you'd use something like clay. This is an Old Testament house. It's a recreation, of course. The bedroom in the back, the work area, and that's the manger. When we're starting the practice, New Testament, people said, you can't use the word manger. That's an old-fashioned, archaic word. Thought maybe. No, we thought we kind of 
wanted to use manger. So I was doing a, a weekend presentation for lay people up in the Appleton area. And I was talking about mangers. And I had a bunch of farmers, of course, from that general area of Wisconsin. And I told them about, we were deciding whether to use manger. And they said, manger is an old-fashioned word. They said, that's the dumbest thing we ever heard. <laughs> Feeding troughs are for hogs, mangers are for sheep and calves. Well, at least in that part of Wisconsin. They said, go look it up on the Amazon catalog. Go look up on the egg catalog. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. So this was where people moved around from session to session. So I had another group, a completely different group, and I was giving them the spiel again. And it was farmers, and they said, that's the dumbest thing we ever heard. <laughs> Feeding troughs are for hogs. Use the word mangers. So I looked it up on Amazon, and a lot of the mangers, of course, are Christmas mangers. But in egg catalogs, they sell mangers. They're usually metal. Amazon also sells, they call them, swaddling cloths. They spell it without the E. So if you need some swaddling cloth, I think it's getting kind of a little, people are kind of thinking that's a good idea, and they're going back and try it. So swaddling cloths and mangers, you can buy the real thing from Amazon or some other place. This is a nice stone manger. This one is actually 700 years older than the previous one. This is probably from either Solomon or Ahab's royal stables. You can see the tying place there. Scrolls. Do we have about five minutes yet? Okay, I think we'll finish with scrolls. The way this became a controversy, we translated the king was to have a scroll written for him to read. And they said, well, that's just wrong. It says the king wrote the scroll. Well, the word katav can mean write, but often in the Bible, when it says you built the temple, Solomon wasn't out there with his hammer and his measuring stick, was he? Solomon built a temple. I mean, it was done through your agents. It was extremely difficult to write anything. You had to take your pen, dip it, write a couple of letters, dip it, sharpen your pen. It took you a really long time. Kings did not write things. They had things. It says in the New Testament, Pilate wrote an inscription and placed it on the cross. Did Pilate get out his paintbrush? <laughs> did he get his stepladder out <laughs> and go out and put it on the cross? I think highly unlikely. Pilate called in the professional. Usually they didn't even read to themselves. When the kings were bored and they wanted somebody to read to them about how great they were, they'd bring in a reader and you'd, you'd have a scribe do the writing. So highly unlikely. And besides the fact, it was a real ordeal to write. These are four steps of the Hebrew language. Ezekiel, or Ezra, probably could, unless he went to special school, he couldn't read a word that Moses wrote because the alphabet was so drastically different. It had changed so much. The top is the first alphabet, and that's the one that's interesting because when the alphabet started, you had to draw a picture of each letter. There was no cursive. This is Genesis, Bray Sheet. The first letter on top there is a B. Bait means house. The second letter is an R, Rosh. Rosh means head. 
So to write an R, you had to draw a head. Can you imagine how long it would take you? The third letter is A. Aleph means ox. And then look at the second line. Look right below the ox. The ox got pretty nimble. The ox is now standing on his head. You see the th third letter in? It's R-A, isn't it? It's R-A. The way it and you can find some this way, some, some that way. So R-A is an ox, but our capital A is standing on his head. So to write a scroll, you had to draw every letter. Eventually, they got more cursive writing. They didn't write the vowels. Then they decided, well, we got to put them in. So these are three stages. One, the top one's the time of Moses. Next one, we don't have any biblical manuscripts from there. Second one is about the time of the judges. Third one is the line of the kings. And the bottom one is today. This is the alphabet. An amulet with this word, yod Hey vav Hey, Yahweh, Adonai, the Lord. This was on a thing that a guy, he rolled the silver scroll up. It was found inside his skeleton. He had the benediction on his chest when he was buried. And so it was very difficult to unravel this. It was on silver, so he was probably relatively well-to-do. Paper and ink, you had to make carbon or something for ink. Ink wells, still had them in the 1800s. Kids sometimes did bad stuff with them. They could write on leather, parchment, but papyrus was made from reeds. It was the ancestor of our paper. So making papyrus is quite a thing. And this is the postman, the letter the postman brought you. In other words, it's all rolled up in order to be delivered. And it would have a seal on, of course, so nobody would peek. So you see, you write the letter, roll it up, squish it a little bit. That's why when you see ancient documents, a lot of times there's stripes missing in it. That's where the folds were in the letters. Toilets. What time is it? It's about time. So I'm going, this is the question we're going to start with next week. We're going to visit the public toilets and learn a lot about them. What's missing? You don't have to say it out loud. This is the actual toilet. This is one in Israel at Bet Shan. What's missing? We'll start the session next week. We'll start with the section, what's missing? So this is their typical toilet. They didn't have, of course, unisex toilets or anything like that. It was, these, are at the, these are at the men's gym. So uh, we'll conclude then. Is it quarter after? Okay. Is, if you have a question, why don't you come up and ask me so we can kind of uh, disperse here, or you can save it for next week. So next week, we'll talk about toilets. We'll talk about idols. We'll talk about altars. I'm not sure we'll get all of them done. We'll talk about, uh, let's see what else. Well, we'll talk about some special translations maybe at the end, but uh, coffins, altars, toilets, all of those are some of our topics for next week. So we'll conclude with a prayer. We thank you, Lord, that you preserved the life of the people of ancient Israel and kept them on course so they could safely transmit not only the Savior to us, but uh, the Word of God, which they recorded and preserved for us. Help us appreciate their lives and all they did, but else help us most of all appreciate how you preserved them and how you preserve your people for the sake of the gospel. Amen. Okay, if you have a question while I'm folding up my gear here, that's all right. You can come up and uh, do that. <laughs>